Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to another episode of QUB LawPod. My name's Peter and today, as part of our student focus team, I'm here joined by Kira to talk about problem questions, what problem questions are, why they're assessed, and most importantly, how do we effectively answer them? And today we are speaking to Sarah Jane and Gary, who are working towards their PhDs and are part of the student skills assistance team in the School of Law. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So the idea for today is that we're going to go through what is a problem question, what is it assessing, and then Most importantly, how do we answer them effectively? Yes, so I think the first question we need to ask ourselves is what exactly is a problem question and what is its purpose? Well, essentially, a problem question outlines a situation containing hypothetical facts and as such raises questions that we must answer by reference to the law. We can also think of them as scenario questions, if you will, because of this hypothetical scenario that has been put in front of us. When answering a problem question, we are expected to offer advice to at least one or sometimes more of the parties within the scenario and to comment on the legal position and responsibilities that arise from within the facts that have been presented to us. So this could potentially be anything from contract law, um, somebody might be perhaps selling a car online, to perhaps um, a situation um, within criminal law, perhaps an assault or something like that. So it can really be anything um, within a very wide range of possibilities. Problem questions are a really good opportunity to get a feel for what a career practice in law may entail. And by that I mean in the capacity that it gives us an opportunity to provide legal advice to a fictional client. The key thing to remember about a problem question is there's not always one correct answer. And so as a solicitor, when you're giving advice to a client, it's not really your responsibility to tell them what the correct answer it is. At the end of the day, the client is going to make this decision for themselves. So really your responsibility here is to just present the facts as they come and weigh up the pros and cons and present the facts to the client as their various options in front of them. Wonderful, thank you. And then Sarah Chien, what is a problem question trying to assess? What is the point of this mode of assessment? Well, yeah, that's a very good question because I think the key thing to realise is that a problem question is totally different to an essay question. They're two very distinct assignments and they're really testing different things from students. So they're not asking a student to perform like a task of exploring, evaluating, assessing or analysing a particular question or subject area or development in the law. A problem question requires you to apply the law to a particular set of facts and it's the application that's totally important. Um, So it's a totally different concept. Um, I think the important thing for students to note is that while she might have done a lot of reading, you know, different textbooks, journal articles, all the rest of it, you might be tempted to convey to the reader everything you've learned about a particular subject area and the development of the law, but that's absolutely not the thing to do in a problem question. Like Gary said, if you're advising a client, you know, someone who doesn't have any knowledge of the law prior to this, they're not going to be interested in the academic debate and the development of a particular issue 
how the law stood 20 years ago, how it's different now. So you really need to keep your problem scenario response to be as kind of succinct and concise as possible, addressing the key points. I've always really liked to think of it as, you know, when you're going through it, you're really identifying bullet points that you need to address and you're really sticking closely to the issue at hand. One of the best things that my personal tutor when I was studying law said to me, Dr. David Kapper, is that when you respond to a question like this, you're showing your knowledge as much in what you leave out by what you put in. Um, And I think that's something that's really worth bearing in mind when answering problem questions. Students should know that there's lots of kind of books and materials out there to help them with this. Um, And one that I kind of looked a lot to was Finch and Fafinski's Legal Skills. Um, And they just reiterated that fact that a client who comes to you for advice doesn't want an explanation of how the law has been used in other cases. He wants to know how it applies to his situation. So the client's only interested in in how the the facts as they occurred are going to impact their best interests. Um, So the idea when answering that is to keep academic or wider commentary to a minimum and just address the facts. That's great advice. Thank you. Um, So I suppose the next question is, when we first sit down to tackle a problem question, how should we approach trying to determine our answer? So mercifully, there are techniques to solving problem questions. The most commonly used technique um, to approach a problem question is called IRAC, which stands, or which is an acronym for I-R-A-C. IRAC stands for Issue, Rule, Application and Conclusion. So we're just going to break that down and go through each letter for you one by one. And hopefully by the end, you should have a good understanding of the technique used to break down a problem question into smaller, more manageable stages that will help you arrive at your overall conclusion and no doubt, sound legal advice for your fictional client. So the first letter is I, and that stands for issue. The initial stage requires us to identify the legal issue or question that needs answering based on the facts before you. To identify the issue of a question, you need to sift through the information given and ask, why have I been told this? Some information may be provided to make the scenario more readable. So you need to think, what is the legal significance of this fact in the context of the question? For some more complicated scenarios, you may find it helpful to outline who did what to whom. This will help you identify the potential offence or offences committed and who and where liability lies. For example, Tom pushed Jane to the ground. Consider whether Tom is liable for assault or perhaps assault occasioned actually bodily harm or GBH, um, which is assault causing grievous bodily harm. If you identify a basis upon which someone is liable, you should then identify the sub-issues. By exploring the sub-issues within the big issue, you are breaking the answer down into a series of mini problem questions. So the IRAC technique can be used in relation to each sub-issue. You should therefore have multiple applications of IRAC within your answer. The next stage of IRAC is R and R stands for rule. So we need to identify the relevant laws, case law, statute, legislation, which contains the applicable law that will allow us to answer the question. The next step is to identify the correct area of law. This may require some research. We need to state the law, therefore, what is required is an initial abstract statement of a legal principle and then further elaboration on aspects of that principle as it applies to the scenario. It is important to remember that a problem question is concerned with the current law and its interpretation, so do not allow yourself to be distracted by discussions around how the law came to be this way. If if a particular offence is governed by statute, you should quote the relevant sections and subsections in your answer. If the offence is governed by case law, you should refer to the most recent legal precedent that applies in this jurisdiction. 
There may be a degree of uncertainty in the law. It is fine to have a short discussion of this, but you must come to a conclusion on what you think applies to your scenario. Remember with the case law, and please forgive my attempt to pronounce Latin here, it is the ratio decidendi, which um, means the principle, and that is what is key here. A lengthy discussion of facts will often prove irrelevant. Excellent, and not not a bad attempt. Maybe just leave it as ratio. So we've now covered the I and the R. Sergey, and what about the A? What about application? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Peter. So yeah, the A stands for application. If you're a nerd like me, I think this is the most exciting part. This is where you can be a wee bit creative and show um, that you have an aptitude for applying the law to the issue and the facts that are before us in the question. So this involves actually answering the question and drawing upon the facts provided to show how the requirements of the law either are or are not satisfied. So I think the key thing to bear in mind is that you should absolutely not state the law in large chunks. Always remember to relate it to the facts of your question. Um, so there's no point, you know, quoting from very lengthy statutes, you know, the whole subsections, you know, quoting a really long quote from a particular case. It's about, as Gary said, the ratio decidendi that, that was in that case law or the specific um, piece of legislation relating it to the facts. So if an offence or a principle requires several aspects to be met, you need to address those as sub-issues in turn and relate the law to each aspect. So an example of um, relating the law to the facts and going through the different sub-issues um, would be, for example, if your scenario, your problem question, um, say it was an equity and it was about um, a valid trust or whether or not the fictional client created a valid trust. Um, so you would start your discussion by saying that you know, according to the law, three certainties are required for the existence of a valid trust um, and, you know, cite the law. And then you can number those. So certainty of intention, certainty of subject matter and certainty of objects. Um, as these are sub-issues of the overall issue of whether there is a valid trust, you take them in turn. So, for example, you could you could literally just put number one, certainty of intention requires evidence that, that, that the testator intended to create a trust. Um, and then you would go back to the facts of your question and you can judge from that yourself whether or not the fictional client intended to create a trust. Um, and if they did, you then would go back to the facts. What did they do um, that made you think that that addressed the law in turn? Or you can continue to outline the meaning of the separate sections and then turn back to the facts. Um, but the most important thing is that you address the law as it applies to the facts in all stages. If there's particular facts that were given to you, for example, a particular crime or something that was committed, at a, at a particular time, you might be asked to comment on that and relate it back to the law as it stands in either case law or, or legislation. Yes, that's great. Thanks. Um, and then finally, we come to C for conclusion. So what advice can you provide on tying our answer together? Yeah, thanks, Kira. So I guess coming down to the more business end of Iraq, we come to conclusion and we must arrive at our overall answer and I guess summary of the problem question and the decision that we're going to arrive at with regard to what advice that we're actually going to give to our client. So firstly, we need to evaluate the situation and paint an overall picture. You may be required to advise your client if they are likely to ultimately be found liable. Conversely, you may be required to advise someone on the likelihood of whether they can bring a civil case against someone else. Importantly, you will be required to come to a conclusion on each of the separate issues and the sub-issues, so that's important to remember. If you have applied IRAC properly and applied the law, you will have a succession of conclusions throughout your answer. You can tie these all together at the end in your overall conclusion, so make sure, and this is really key, that they are consistent. 
don't be afraid to reach. It depends in conclusion. If the definition of a particular offence is fact-specific and the scenario does not allay clearly to a particular legal precedent, you may conclude that you need further information to come to a definitive conclusion. State briefly what this further information would be. For example, if X were true, then Adam would almost certainly be found liable. Excellent. I think that's a really good kind of outline of just exactly how IRAC works. So to finish off then, let's try and summarise this a bit, Sergi, and what are our key tips for students when answering these? Yeah, absolutely, Peter. So yeah, as Gary was saying, the IRAC tool is, is fantastic for helping you to break down the question and arrive at a well-reasoned legal position and answer. The most important thing is that you never just kind of leap to conclusions or form opinions without it having backed up in the law. Just from my own experience, I'm a teaching assistant on the criminal law module. I think with something like criminal law, because a lot of these offences are, are things we see in the news and we kind of do come across in everyday life, people naturally gravitate towards maybe like a moral conclusion. Um, and it's very easy just immediately to jump on something, but it's all about having recourse to the law and applying it to the facts. Everything needs to be backed up and presented together. So an example of relating the law to the facts and going through the different sub-issues um, would be, for example, if your scenario, your problem question, say it was an equity and it was about a valid trust or whether or not the fictional client created a valid trust. So you would start your discussion by saying that, you know, according to the law, three certainties are required for the existence of a valid trust um, and, you know, cite the law. Then you can number those. So certainty of intention, certainty of subject matter and certainty of objects. As these are sub-issues of the overall issue of whether there is a valid trust, you take them in turn. So, for example, you could you could literally just put number one, certainty of intention requires evidence that, 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 that the testator intended to create a trust. And then you would go back to the facts of your question and you can judge from that yourself whether or not the fictional client intended to create a trust. Um, and if they did, you then would go back to the facts. What did they do um, that made you think that that addressed the law in turn? Or you can continue to outline the meaning of the separate sections and then turn back to the facts. But the most important thing is that you address the law as it applies to the facts in all stages. And just to reiterate what Gary said about performing IRAC kind of in a cycle on every separate issue and sub-issue, I think that's so key. If students take away one thing, it's that IRAC should not be, you know, a plan for your answer. It, you know, you shouldn't put, put those initials down the page. You should be performing a series of IRACs throughout, nearly like a wheel. You can see maybe going through your answer, you know, four or five complete wheels in separate paragraphs. And I think that's a really good way of thinking of it. It might sound a bit overwhelming, particularly as it's hard to kind of talk about without having, you know, a scenario in front of you. But really don't panic. You know, if students just kind of plan before they write their answer, follow the steps of IRAC. In reality, the process of identifying a question to be answered, what, you know, the applicable rule and combining the two to reach a conclusion is something that we do, you know, all the time in everyday life. So it's just about performing this in an, in a legal context. So I would just encourage students to take their time, read the question carefully and highlight every single issue you come across. If you're required to advise several different people, you know, the different legal parties, maybe use different coloured pens to keep a track of which facts apply to which case and each person to avoid any confusion. So yeah, again, it's just about dealing with everything separately, making sure you don't miss anything and not applying IRAC to the question as a whole. Just do it as a cycle. Like I said, that's probably the most common mistake that students would make, Peter. Um, so we need to do our best to make sure our students um, avoid doing that. Wonderful. So I think what we've heard today is 
definitely some prescriptive ideas about here's what you should do, but also really importantly, what you shouldn't. So to start with, the most important thing is to make sure that you identify all of the relevant issues and sub-issues. So it's about taking your time to plan your answer. I certainly know from my own personal experience when I began answering problem questions that upon reading through the narrative the first couple of times, there was a sense of panic because you felt like you maybe didn't recognise anything that you could put into the law. So you need to read it a number of times. You need to have, the yeah, I guess the relevant legal text handy. And that's when you can then start to think about, after the issues, what's the relevant law, how am I going to apply it, and what conclusions am I going to draw? Another kind of side point as well is that a problem question requires a much shorter introduction than an essay. In an essay, what you're trying to do is you're trying to state, these are the different arguments I'm going to make, and then the overall conclusion I'm going to draw in relation to the question that I'm discussing. In a problem question, all you really need to do is start by identifying the subject of the question. For example, you might start in a contract law question by saying, the facts of this question relate to the law of mistake in UK contract law. Yes, um, and I suppose it's important to note as well that whilst you must address the facts of the scenario, you must do this within the context of your application of the law. So basically don't just retell the story, for example, Instead of, the scenario involves Claire, who was walking past the river and saw Alex drowning and walked past him, say, this question concerns the criminal liability of omission as it relates to Claire's decision not to save Alex from drowning. It's also important to follow the instructions of the question. So if you are asked to comment on John's liability for GBH as opposed to a more general invitation to discuss John's criminal liability, that you don't waste your time by discussing John's liability for other things like criminal damage, arson and burglary, even if it is clear to you that these offences were committed. And your overall conclusion, it should be concise, but it should tie up everything and tie up the various strands within your question. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. I want to say a huge thank you to both Gary and Sarah Jane for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And hopefully... For those of us that are out there trying to answer problem questions and in need of some advice, this episode can serve as a bit of an aid. 